Hi, everybody. I'm Josh. And I'm Ethan. And this is The Young Perspective. First of all, everybody, we want to welcome you back to season three of The Young Perspective. This is our 41st episode. Season three is going to be very exciting. We're going to be focusing on guests. And to start us off, we are speaking to former Green Party presidential candidate, Howie Hawkins. For a brief history of Mr. Hawkins, he was drafted into the Army in 1972, and before that, he attended Dartmouth College. Mr. Hawkins co-founded the Green Party and has supported eco-socialism, and he supports that to this day. He ran for New York governor in 2010, 2014, and 2018, and was, and was chosen by the Green Party as the presidential nominee last July, along with his running mate, Angela Walker. So welcome to The Young Perspective, Mr. Hawkins. We're glad to have you. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Mr. Hawkins, to start us off, tell us a little bit about your campaign for presidential candidate. What went wrong? What went right? Well, we had two goals. One was very practical. In about 40 of the states, the vote we get for president determines whether the Green Party has a ballot line for the next election cycle. And we didn't do too well in that. Our vote was so low that we lost a lot of ballot lines. The other objective was to get our policy perspectives into the debate and try to move them forward. Things that the majority of people support. I mean, our platform was more popular than Biden and Trump's. People want a Green New Deal. People want Medicare for all. They want a job guarantee. They want to reprioritize the federal budget away from the military toward domestic, social, and environmental protections. But we couldn't get a word in edgewise because the whole dynamic was a referendum on Trump. And corporate media, I think they were afraid to cover us because they didn't want to distract from uh, the uh, pro-Biden vote particularly after, you know, the establishment Democrats closed ranks against Bernie Sanders. And then Sanders and the other progressives in the Democratic Party closed ranks behind Biden themselves. So the unfortunate thing is that these progressive policies were never debated in the presidential campaign. You go down ballot and you look at the congressional candidates that ran on Medicare for All and a Green New Deal, they won. And the ones that the corporate Democrats are criticizing the progressives for them doing so bad down ballot. Those are the people, the people that lost are the people that didn't run on Medicare for all in a Green New Deal. So for us, you know, it was frustrating because we knew we had a popular program, but we weren't in the debates. We got no coverage in the corporate media and not even the progressive media. You know, we got it on a lot of podcasts like yours and others, but, uh, and we did our social media But uh, we were, I think the Greens will be marginal to a presidential debate until they elect thousands of people to local office and from their state legislatures and Congress. Because if you look back. So does does this problem fall with the two party system that we have in this country, that we have really two sides and and two voices that are representative? And and once they choose their nominees for president, you know, those are those are the opinions of these two parties that you have to choose one or the other. That's the larger dynamic. So even, say, in 2000, we ran somebody with a household name, Ralph Nader, for an open seat after 
Bush was running as a quote unquote compassionate conservative and Gore was running on the Clinton legacy, although he was kind of running away from it too, but it was a corporate hawk legacy. So there was a lot more opening there and Nader got 2.7%. And then there was a backlash because Bush narrowly won with a lot of shenanigans in Florida and in the Supreme Court. So in 2004, uh, the Greens themselves were split between Nader and their own nominee, and the vote went way down. Uh, you know, the Green nominee got about a quarter of the vote we're getting this election, and Nader got about a little bit more than we got because he's such a well-known person. But So every year is a different di dynamic. 2016, again, an open seat with the two most unpopular major party candidates in history. By favorability ratings, Trump was the lowest and Hillary Clinton was the second lowest. So that gave, you know, we did better that year. We got 1.1% and 1.4 million votes. But the problem is that doesn't reflect our program with the people is more popular. But you have a winner take all system and then you have the electoral college which distorts the popular vote. So the only Republicans first elected in the 21st century lost the popular vote. Trump was a loser and so was George W. Bush. So we need electoral reforms, I think, to open it up, along with, you know, the Greens getting a base. And that means ranked choice voting. Replace the electoral college with a ranked choice vote uh, of the national popular vote. And we can do that down ballot. We had five more cities pass ranked choice voting this year. Uh, Alaska looks like it adopted it. It's narrow, but it looks like it passed in Alaska. So that now gives us 28 cities and counties in two states using ranked choice voting. I think this is an idea whose time has come, and that's going to be a big emphasis for the Green Party going forward. So how does ranked choice voting play into the fact that it puts the Green Party and other third parties' political agendas on the footsteps of Democrats and Republicans, and how does it make your party more representative of how many actual votes you would uh, get if there wasn't a two-party system? Well, in ranked choice voting, you rank your choices one, two, three. It's as easy as one, two, three. And, uh, and you can rank more, four, five, six. Um, and so if nobody gets a majority of votes in the first round, it's like instant runoffs. So the last place candidate is eliminated and their ballots are transferred to their second choice. And you continue that process until somebody gets a majority of the votes. So what that means is, you know, a lot of people wanted to vote for us, but voted for Biden because they're afraid of Trump. Well, in a ranked choice vote, they could rank us first and Biden second and not worry about helping Trump. So what that does is open up the field for everybody to vote for who they really want without worrying about helping those that they fear the most. So you say this is the best alternative uh, because of the systems we have in this country. We don't have a parliamentary system where we, you know, we get coalitions and you can vote for really whatever party you want, like they do in the UK. So is this the best alternative for, for being able to vote for any party that you believe in? Yeah, you can, you can have coalitions in legislatures without a parliamentary system. I mean, in a parliamentary system, the legislative body, the majority coalition picks the executive branch. We have independent election of the president, governor, mayor in most cities, or a lot of cities. Although some cities, you know, the council picks the mayor. So we kind of have it at the local level in some places. But 
you can have ranked choice voting for multi-member districts. That just passed in Albany, California, this election by over three to one. Uh, it's been in Cambridge, Massachusetts since the 1920s. And there's a bill in Congress called the Fair, uh, Fair Representation Act that proposes to do that for congressional delegations from the states. So I think that's the, that's the way we get a multi-party system, ranked choice voting. In the legislative elections, you have multi-member districts. Do you think there is a large base that are based that may be voting Democratic right now that if there was a ranked choice system that would vote Green Party? From my research, the Green Party is big into eco-socialism and both sides on the media, they, they try to stay away from the category of socialism because of some of the historical negative biases against it. But do you think you'd have a significant amount of voters moving over to Green in a ranked choice system? Absolutely. I think we'd beat the Democrats and Republicans in a lot of races. Um, and, and we don't run on an ism. We kind of use that to summarize the perspective. And we can talk about that, but we run on policies like the Green New Deal, which came from the Green Party. I was the first candidate in the country to run on that in 2010. And the Democrats put our slogan and diluted the content. And we got issues with that. Medicare for all a job guarantee. These issues are very popular. And I think if we had a, you know, an election where people could vote for what they want without worrying about helping, in, in our case, the Republicans, yeah, I think we'd do real well. You spoke a little bit about your political agenda of your campaign and the Green Party as a whole, but can you maybe give a little more detail about the most important policies of the Green Party and your, cam- your campaigns, Mr. Hawkins? Sure, the Green New Deal, our Green New Deal, and we've developed a detailed budget that's on our website. And its goal is 100% clean energy and zero to negative greenhouse gas emissions in a decade. And we call it eco-socialist Green New Deal because in order to do that in the time frame we're talking about, we got to do what we did during World War II when the federal government took over a quarter of the manufacturing capacity of the country in order to turn industry on a dime into what they called the arsenal of democracy, to arm the allies against Hitler and Tojo and Mussolini. We need to do the same kind of thing, particularly with public enterprise and planning in the energy, transportation and manufacturing sectors to transform all our productive systems in a decade. So that's the Green New Deal to deal with the climate crisis. It's also an economic recovery program because instead of trickle down economics where both Biden and Trump had their versions of it. You give extra money to the rich and the corporations, supposedly to incentivize them to create new you know, factories and offices and so forth and create new jobs. But without demand there, because the economy is depressed, the rich folks take that money and they make financial investments in stocks and bonds and commodities and real estate. And they just rearrange and further concentrate who owns the productive assets that we got. Our Green New Deal directly employs people and has the government directly making things to get the resources to where they're needed to get the economy going again. So that's the top issue, the climate and the economy. We have an economic bill of rights that is an idea that goes back to FDR and his last two State of the Union addresses in 1944 and 1945. It's never been implemented. Includes a job guarantee, guaranteed income above poverty, universal health care through a Medicare for all type system, 
building out public housing so everybody has an affordable housing option, lifelong public education from child care and pre-K through post-secondary college and trade school, and then increasing social security benefits. So when seniors get to retirement age, they can actually retire instead of having to work till they drop dead because they're in poverty with the benefits they got now. So Mr. Hawkins, you said that under your Green New Deal, uh, the government would be making some some goods. And, and from my understanding, that fits into part of the definition of socialism, but you do claim an overarching idea is eco-socialism. What, what do you say to somebody who, who says socialism hasn't worked in most other continents? It didn't work in the USSR or Yugoslavia or, or, or it doesn't really work in China when they opened it up to, to capitalism. That's when China started growing. What do you say to those people? Uh, none of those countries were socialist. Socialism is economic democracy. They didn't have workers' control of production. They didn't have community control of production. They had a bureaucracy control of production from the top down. And you really can't have political democracy without the economic democracy of socialism. Because under capitalism, you get a super rich billionaire class, as Bernie Sanders called it. And Bernie wanted to tax them to fund his programs. But if they are still there with their concentrated economic power, that translates into concentrated political power not just in the form of campaign contributions and lobbyists, but also in the fact that they make the investment decisions. And if they don't like what the government's doing, they can go on strike, capital strike, wreck the economy and blame the reformers. So you've got to have social ownership and democratic administration of the economy. And under a socialist system where workers get the full fruit of their value, instead of a fixed wage with all the surplus value they create going to the owners, you get a more egalitarian or equitable distribution of income. So you don't get this highly concentrated uh, wealthy class and extreme inequality. And that is prerequisite for democracy. I mean, our, our, in our early part of our country, you know, the, you know, Jefferson said, you know, he wanted lots of small property owners because they were independent and uh, nobody would dominate them. But now we have a situation where we have a very wealthy class that dominates. So what is your plan and your party's plan to, in the future, get these uh, policies on the table and get them passed in the House of Representatives and Senate? We got to build it from below. We've, we've won over 1,200 races over the years. We have over 100 uh, elected officials now. I don't know how many we elected in this election. I've seen at least 10 and as many as 24. I haven't seen anybody really pull together the numbers yet. So we can replicate that, scale that up and elect thousands. And that becomes a foundation for getting in the state legislatures and then the House of Representatives. You know, if you've got people on your city council and your school board and your Greens, it's not such a big step for people to say, well, we elected them here. Let's elect them to the state ledge or to the House of Representatives. And we can win those local races because those are more about, you know, people knowing who you are. And then the party label doesn't become the thing they look for. They look for the person that's running. And if you go around and talk to people, they may not even agree with you on policy, but they appreciate the fact that you came and listened to them because nobody else does. That's where we have the advantage at the grassroots if we use it. So I think that's how we get there. 
Um, was that was that the real goal of your campaign? Was it not to to win the presidential election? Was it to further get out the the Green Party ideals so that maybe uh, lesser elections like city or state you know offices could be held by the Green Party? That was a major message of my campaign to the grassroots of the Greens and the independent left. One, you know, getting ballot lines makes it a lot easier to run for those local offices. I mean, it varies from state to state, but. You know, my state of New York, we lost our ballot line. So the number of signatures in my city of Syracuse that we need to get to run for city council or mayors of next year or the school board is about 30 times more signatures, which is a big burden. You're spending a lot of time petitioning instead of actually talking to people in more in-depth conversations and campaigning on your issues. Is that one of the problems in this country where it takes a lot for for smaller, you know, political theories um, or, you know, not not Democrats and not Republicans to get their name out there because it's hard to get on the ballot? Absolutely. This country is way beyond most countries and in, in how hard it is to get access to the ballot. If you want to run as an independent without a ballot line for Congress, in most states, it's thousands or tens of thousands of signatures. You wanna run for the House of Commons in the UK? It's 10 signatures. You wanna run for Congress in India, the world's largest democracy? It's two signatures. It's two signatures in New Zealand. It's 50 in Australia, it's 100 in Canada. Here it's thousands or tens of thousands. Does this also play into that non-Democrats and non-Republicans can't be featured in, in the presidential or even the, the gubernatorial debates? Yeah, it's a problem. I mean, we sometimes get in. In New York, I twice debated uh, Governor Cuomo, but the third time he didn't want to debate me. We got 5% of the vote in 2014. I, he wasn't happy about that because then he couldn't take us for granted. And he adopted a number of measures that we'd been advocating and he had not, like a ban on fracking and a $15 minimum wage. So in 2018, the problem is the corporate media doesn't say we're going to have a debate and, and here's who we're inviting. Instead, they wait in, in the case of New York for the governor of New York to say what debates he'll do. And in the last election, he just decided to do one snap debate with the Republican on the radio. And uh, <clears throat> we got the legal women voters to invite. There were five candidates to invite everybody but Cuomo didn't show up and the corporate media didn't televise it or broadcast it on radio. Mr. Hawkins, you mentioned this earlier. <clears throat> you said that the, uh, the Green New Deal made popular by House Democrats like AOC is a lot different than your Green, o D Green New Deal that you originally campaigned with in 2010. Can you lay out some of the differences that they altered? Yeah, they dropped the uh, demand for a ban on fracking and new fossil fuel infrastructure. And if we build that infrastructure out, we're going to be locked into decades more burning, particularly natural gas, because that's what they're doing. They're, they're fracking for natural gas and building the pipelines and gas-fired power plants. Uh, we want to phase out nuclear power. They dropped that. Uh, we wanted to take money from the military budget to put it in the Green New Deal. They dropped that. And then they extended the deadline for zero emissions from 2030 to 2050. And they call it net zero emissions. Now, the fossil fuel industry loves that because then they can say, well, we're going we're gonna to burn fossil fuels, but capture and sequester the carbon. 
That's not economically feasible. The biggest demonstration project just went bankrupt in this country. Um, or you plant some trees to offset. But we're past the point of just stopping the release of greenhouse gases. We got to reduce the carbon in the atmosphere. If 350 parts per million is the threshold of safety, which James Hansen, the NASA climate scientist, you know, identified and Bill McKibben of 350.org made uh, popular, we're at 415 now. So we not only have to stop, we got to draw carbon out of the atmosphere through afforestation, rebuilding soils, and other methods. So, you know, that's, and, and then let me just add that watered down Green New Deal, which was a non-binding resolution, Pelosi never let him vote on it in the House. And McConnell said, we'll let you vote on it because half you Democrats are running for president. And so all the Democrats voted present, except the four that voted with the Republicans, no. So they, they not only diluted it, then they abandoned it. And now you can't even find it in the Democratic platform or Biden's climate policy. They buried it. So is, is the reason that they, they've been bearing and they've been changed, they altered it from your original Green New Deal, is that because they fear that, that the people of this country won't, won't like if, if, the, if the Green New Deal is passed like you uh, originally had put forth? Um, and, and if so, what do you say to the people of this country who don't want a Green New Deal for, for economic reasons? They fear they'll lose their jobs, you know, if, if fracking is banned or if, if oil is stopped, if we slow down. Uh, what do you say to them now? In the long term, I think they understand that it can benefit everybody economically. But what do you say to the people who are going to lose their jobs in the short term? There's more jobs in renewable energy than there is in natural gas or oil, by far, by multiples, orders of magnitude. Our uh, Eco-Socialist Green New Deal budget came up with 38 million new jobs if we implement our program. And we have a just transition, which guarantees up to five years wages and benefits for anybody who is displaced by this transition. But there's so many jobs available, it's just going to be a matter of retraining and people can go right back to work. So the jobs argument, I've been dealing with that since the 70s. It's never held up. And, I, you know, you ask why the Democrats do it, because they're getting contributions from building trades unions that are, you know, in the natural gas industry the gas companies, uh, in Biden's case, uh, nuclear executives. That's why they want nuclear, too. First time in 50 years for the Democratic Party. It's the special interests. The public opinion polls are clear. Overwhelming majorities, including a majority of Republicans, want a Green New Deal. They know climate is a serious problem. And they know they're good jobs in renewable energy. Mr. Hawkins, we want to thank you so much for coming on. We also want to know why is it important for young people to hear your message and to listen to this? Why did you come on to our podcast so young people uh, could hear your message? Well, we've got the strongest response from young people. And, you know, what we hear is they're fighting for their future on the climate, for racial justice, for their economic futures, for economic justice. And, you know, young folks, they haven't been defeated, you know, and beat down by the system like some older folks, my generation, the boomers. Yeah, we were the 60s radicals. There are not many of us left from my generation. And so, you know, people say that Angela and I inspired them. I got to say, y'all inspired us. So we're going to keep going, and I hope you guys do too.
Well, everybody, that is what Mr. Hawkins has to say. Thank you, Mr. Hawkins, for coming on. We, of course, appreciate it. Don't forget, everybody, tune in every Friday at 4 o'clock for a new episode of The Young Perspective, season three season four Ethan season Season three three. season three is going to be awesome we're we're super excited we're going to have a lot of awesome guests like like Mr. Hawkins here so thank you everybody for listening and remember this was the young perspective